0: The Peter Switzer Show is brought to you by The Switzer Report. Sign up today at switzerreport.com.au.
1: Hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and this is our best of collection. And this time we've put together the best of tech. We've got Bevan Slattery, the brains, the founder of Great companies like NextDC and Megaport and a whole lot more. Larry Diamond, co-founder of Zip Money. Zip, as you know, is the battler with Afterpay. And then we have Adam Gilmore of Gilmore Space Technologies. Yes, we actually have a guy in this country that makes rocket ships. These are our guests. Let's kick off with Bevan Slattery. Give us an idea of where you came from, background-wise, left you in a situation where you have this obviously an astute ability to pick companies that have potential and then develop them have you ever thought about that you know
2: probably more in recent times of you know uh, i've had to think about sometimes why i do what i do um and um you know it's a good thing sometimes when you have that excitement activity but sometimes it's uh you kind of wonder why you're doing five things at once as well. So you know, it's a blessing and a curse at times. But but no, it's, it's a really humble beginning. Grew up in a small town, uh, Rockhampton, um, in central Queensland. Um, you know, just went to you know, normal schools like everyone else. Um, you know, went to state school and state high school and... Uh, Kind of, I was pretty fortunate in the '80s and the early, early mid '80s that you know the, the PC kind of the, the home computer was coming along, the VIC 20 and the Commodore 64, and that kind of revolution really came the home computing piece. So, you know, that really piqued my interest in in, in computing. Um, even though I, you know, being in Rockhampton, there were there weren't many computer jobs apart from at the computer store. So, um, I did a, um, well, actually, I dropped out of a, a bachelor of business degree in accounting, which I, I managed to scoop up some twenty something years later um, mm. at my at my, lo- my hometown, and then I, I worked in local government of all places. There's um, yeah, something called a, a trainee local government clerk, um, which yeah. So that was kind of that was kind of my background, and, and uh, you know, I didn't start in IT, but I, I certainly ended up there.
1: Yeah, I guess one thing about councils that they would have had plenty of computers compared to every other business around.
2: Yeah, yeah, they did, yeah, and and it was actually a really interesting time. Uh, local government was moving from cash accounting to accrual accounting so you know they had to put in you know um, geospatial information systems to track assets and rows and everything from rows to street signs so I got to see some of that mm. um, changing of how we charge rates and how we accounted for it so it was actually a really really interesting time to kind of be involved in in local government.
1: Mm. Yeah you've kind of revealed to us earlier as I was listening to your first answer I thought I wonder if this guy ever did accounting and then you've you revealed that you, you've had a, a real brush with accounting because to, to develop so many businesses, it's, it's one thing to be entrepreneurial and visionary, but a lot of visionary entrepreneurs have fallen by the wayside because they, they didn't really understand you know the, their balance sheet and their, their profit and loss. Has that been critically important to, to your success? Do you think that you actually are able to marry in your vision and what needs to be done to make a company work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, having having the accounting uh, background at, at uni was, was, was important. Interestingly, the first kind of company in the tech space I worked for, um, I opened up a license of theirs. It was an internet service provider back in the kind of middle to kind of 97 thereabouts. Um, within six weeks of starting there, I knew they'd go bankrupt. Um, mm. And that was a really sobering moment when you kind of, and you know, it was when they had a lot of prepaid hours. You'd you'd pay five hundred dollars and get five hundred hours of dial up internet, um, and they were just, you know, they were living the high life. And you know, every time I saw a five hundred dollar check, I, I saw five hundred hours of unearned revenue sitting there, and uh, <laughs> you know, and I figured out pretty quickly that, that they were going to going to kind of tank and. You know that was that was a an example of where having that background you could see the difference. But being in the listed and public markets as well, you know, I've had a few ASX companies over the years. So you know, having that background's helped me a lot, particularly as you know, as the finance side and and, and audit side of these businesses gets um even more complex.
1: Okay, so I, I read out a long list of companies that you've founded. <clears throat> um, uh, have we left out names that didn't work? That you know you thought would work, and they they're not on the list because they didn't work.
2: Um, I don't think so. No. Okay.
1: Um, so you're you're like the Steve Smith of business found it, found him, mate. Like, every time you play, you, you hit a century.
2: <laughs> I believe that or the Steve Bradbury, but otherwise, it's worked out all right. So, no, it's it's worked out all right so far.
1: So. Yeah, that's great. It's so
2: plenty of so, close calls though. You know, yeah. plenty of close calls, right? So. You know that's 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 one of the things. It's not. It's never a walk in the park. It never has been. But yeah. you know, a lot of pers- perseverance and there's been a lot of tough times to get through there.
1: Mm. Um, have you learned a lot from you know watching and reading and being connected with some of the the, the great tech entrepreneurs, particularly of America? You know, like the the Jobs, you know, the Gates. And all the other Silicon Valley big names?
2: I I don't think so. Um, Terrific. It's 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 going to be a great (laughs) answer, mate. Don't get me wrong. I've actually never really read a a book in my life. Um, (laughs) And I'm not exaggerating. I remember when I was at school, I actually did a book review and I watched a movie version of it and the movie version of the book were fairly different. So, okay. and my oral presentation was, was a little bit off, but, um, I, I read a lot. I mean, I, I read a lot of interesting articles, um, but to have the patience to read an entire book is, is a struggle for me. Um, and it, I, I think, you know, I think somewhere I've got a touch of ADHD or something somewhere along the line. So, um, and, and I think growing up, that's one of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, I, I've, I've not had really many kind of mentors um you know when you're up in australia you know particularly in the kind of early 2000s coming from a regional town and you know then moved to brisbane there just wasn't those people around um uh to kind of get that so look candidly you know the first decade you know up until probably 2010 um it was it was It was just a few of us getting together and pushing pretty hard i've found though that my network of people and once you get more credibility as well you know um i found i've been able to reach out to to people who are customers and partners who support you um and it's only probably in the last three years i've been able to um well even part of the last decade you know meeting people like you you mentioned Craig, rocky in particular um you know ted ted pretty and, and people back at the next board but um, some people who are real mentors to me, and even Pipe Networks, Roger Clark, but I haven't had that kind of opportunity to sit down with those of founders and look. I haven't read haven't read their books and things, which which I know is a failing on my part, and <laughs> I know it'd be better if I did read a lot of those books. Um, but no, at the moment, I, I really haven't done a lot of that. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, sorry. <laughs>
1: no, don't apologise, mate. Because you know, I'm I'm forensically trying to work out what it is that you've got that's helped you make a success and it varies you know like I've, I've interviewed Richard Branson he's very different than Jerry Harvey and he's and Jerry Harvey's very different from uh, when, I, when I read about Steve Jobs and you know uh, I've even interviewed um, um, the, the former CEO of um, GE, um, Jack Welch, uh, and Jack was very different to all of those guys. So yeah. there's no one formula for success in sort of building a, a great company. But I'm going to try and work out what is your strength, and I'll ask you that question. What, what do you think is your strength when it comes to building successful companies?
2: That's a uh- – Seeing opportunities is typically the the, the main one, um, and then figuring out how to try to turn that turn it into a business. I mean, one of the the things I keep saying to people is often to to find an opportunity in business, you first need to be in business. Um, and nearly all the businesses that I've done have have been a knock on from a a problem that i've had in a previous business pipe networks there wasn't you know an independent national neutral data center provider geez i wish there really was one so that's when i kind of created next dc and that next dc you know we had an an amazing presence in brisbane and melbourne but we're up against it with some competitors in, in in sydney about creating an ecosystem you know because you know some data centers were there for a long time and and I thought, you know, what I need to do is create some sort of fabric that interconnects data centers together, and 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 almost takes apart the um, uh, the benefits of having some of those data centers been there for a long time. So that's when I kind of started the idea of Megaport. Um, when I built uh, PPC One, which is a submarine cable from Sydney to Guam, back of pipe networks, you know, there was no one around that could actually sell. International capacity to connect to the internet in the US was very expensive. Mm. So I reached out to a friend at Google and said, you know, we're just talking about it. So why don't you build one? And I said, don't be so stupid to do that. But I said, if you were to build it, where would you build it and how much would it cost? And Mm. that's how it started. And, you know, all these businesses are typically solving problems I've actually had in a previous business. Um, And then I kind of think, well, if I can solve that for myself. I wonder who else is kind of in the community I can help solve it for and, you know, let's see if we can work together and see if we can solve it that way. Mm. So, so historically that's how I've seen these is, is an opportunity, well, a problem I've had in the business and and think of a solution to solve it and then if I'm going to solve it, is this a problem that other people have? And if it is, I should test it in a few people and see what they think and then i see if I can make a business case out of
1: it. Yeah. So... Uh When you're taking on these big ideas and, you know, and some people say, well, you know, why don't you do it yourself and uh, you then start ascertaining the cost and whether you can make it work. Along the way, have you dealt with people who, I know, a great – Business speaker in the Australian speaking uh, business speaking circuit, Tom O'Toole says, There's a lot of dream takers out there that always tell you it can't be done. Have you encountered a lot of dream takers in your life and have you proved them wrong?
2: All the time. <laughs> Absolutely all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, when I started, when we started Pipe with with Steve Baxter back in the day, um, we, 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 we. We kind of fell into the main business that became Pipe Networks. Pipe Networks was started as what we call an internet exchange where where internet service providers can exchange data and avoid paying, you know, if, if, if Primus was sending it to, um, let's say, a like Web Central, instead of sending it via Telstra and getting double charged, send it between each other or at least via our exchange and save a lot of money. Kind of like a PABX or a phone system in the old days. Instead of dialing zero to get a line out, you can make an internal call. So, so it started as that, but then we needed some fiber to connect two of the locations together. And one of the carriers, I said, well, I want to buy some what we call dark fiber, which is unlit fiber. We can light it at whatever speed we want. And um, they said, well, we don't do that. And I said, oh, come on. And they said, okay, here's the price to do it. And I said, look, for that amount of money, I can go and get a carrier license and build it myself. Um, and they literally said, well, I don't think you can. If you think you can, why don't you do it? Um, so sure enough, you know, we we had a carrier license. Two months later, three months later, and we we rolled out our first bit of fiber that became, you know, the whole backbone of pipe networks, which is which is huge. Um, submarine cable building to Guam, you know, you can't do that. And you know, I I, I you know I've, I even had people betting money, and, and I had people so arrogant that they they literally told someone, you know, that they bet five dollars that I'd go bankrupt in building it in front of my face back in the day. Um, you know, so yeah, there's there's plenty of those people there, and you know, it's just more fuel for the fire. I think. Mm. Oops. Sorry. I'm being I'm being environmentally conscious here. There we go. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's good. That's good. Yeah. it's funny as you talk about that, it's, it's probably the thoughts I had when I heard that Mike Cannon Brooks was going to develop a, a a sun farm in Northern Territory and put a cable between Darwin and Singapore, and um, you yeah, know he thinks he can do it, and probably he can.
2: Yeah, look, that's an interesting one. Look, I mean, I've got some views on that. Obviously, building submarine cables, but I'll tell you one thing: I'm not going to do. I'm not going to say you can't do it. You know, that's uh, you know, that's that's uh, you know, he certainly has the resources, and you know, I'm sure he's got enough smart people around him. It's a challenge. I've got to say that is an <laughs> yeah. incredibly challenging. That route.
1: seemed huge when I heard at the time, but I thought, well, yeah, he's probably done some homework on it. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So, so let's talk about um, next DC because that's. The company that a lot of investors really know, um, and it's it's been a a, you know, a a great performing company. I know I've on my TV show I've often watched it. It goes up for a while, gets very exciting. It kind of balances out for a while, and it goes up again, and I've kind of always figured that was the, the periods when it's just sort of going sideways. I know you don't have to answer the share price um, movements, but I always think that's probably when you're investing more into your capital to have more capacity because. Capacity is really important for you as the economy embraces the cloud. Is that a fair analysis of what goes on at Next DC? Well,
2: yeah, and certainly in data centres, um, in the more modern era where we call these these hyperscalers, which is your cloud providers, uh, you know, Google, Amazon, Microsoft uh, in particular, um, you'll kind of fill up a facility and then, you know, it takes, you know, 18 months to build another one um and, and when you're kind of doing that you've also got to balance up some of your custom contracts and things like that um so you know most of the data center operators will see that kind of happen and then the market will also uh, when, when you announce a number of new facilities and you announce a number of customers the market kind of always um you know they get excited about it and they kind of they, they give you that forward investment once you've won those customers and then they they want to see you kind of you know fill it up not just build it, but fill it up and then, you know, kind of go again, so to speak. Mm. And that's kind of what you see with with all the data centre operators. Um, you know, they'll, they'll have a, a typically a period of, of growth where they've had good wins and good success. They've rolled out. They spent a lot of money, you know, rolling at those facilities. And then and then the kind of, they're waiting for that utilisation to tick up to what people were expecting it to be. And then once the utilisation ticks up to where it is, you get the return, but then guess what? You're going to be reinvesting again as well. Mm. So it's a kind of... Fairly continuous cycle, and as you see, it picks up. You build your facilities, utilization tracks, and then you go out and build again.
1: Yeah. So, so tell us, um, what's the potential for the cloud? Because you know, the 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 bigger and the more important the cloud is to business and human beings, the the more capacity you're going to have to to build. So, what's the what's the capacity? You know what, what's what's the growth ahead? You know if it's if it's a hundred percent one day, what what are you up to now? Twenty five percent, thirty percent, sixty percent? Best guess.
2: <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm feeling this Bill Gates six hundred and forty kilobytes is all the memory a computer will need moment right now. Um, you know I, I think we're in the you know we're somewhere between I think ten and twenty percent.
1: Unbelievable, um, isn't it? So, yeah, I, so the, the, the use of the cloud is so – I was staggered to realise in America that like they're, they're still buying CD-ROMs for for their bookkeeping stuff. So, you know, with, with zero operating in the cloud, going over to America, they're, they're talking to an audience that might not, you know, be comfortable with the cloud.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think though – I think we're kind of going through a – I think we're about to start to enter a new cycle and the new cycle is on – um machine learning uh, ai and and data lakes you know and, and I, they're calling data oceans now um i, I think that's where <clears throat> we're probably going to see another growth and exponential um capacity both in networks and in data centers um and in storage and processing uh, is is we're about we're about to enter probably what i'd call the machine learning era of the cloud mm. um, it, it's been around for a while but you know the 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 size of data that we're we're starting to see get created and i'm, I'm not talking about um I'll, I'll give you an example so you know if nothing else happened except and if we all took the same amount of photos today as we did five years ago which we know is not true um but if assuming we did you know just in the increase of the megapixels of the photos that we're taking you know um a photo used to be you know 500 kilo, kilobytes you know many years ago but every photo now at, at, at good quality is you know three to five megabytes, right? So the ten times the the size of image. So if you look in the last five years, you know the the cloud will probably need to just on photos alone increase, you know, by mm. some factor of fifty percent. I think though, for me, um, I think this this next level of 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 artificial intelligence and machine learning um, being applied in business, and and, and so what you get, um, Peter, is you get a an exponential return on, on the the AOM machine learning processing with the greater amount of data that you input into this. Mm. So you're going to be finding people interconnecting massive data sets and trying to get as much data in those data sets so they can apply the machine learning to it so they get the, the greater result at the back mm, of it. Yeah. I think uh, we're only entering that era now.
1: Yeah, as I'm listening to you, um, I'm thinking about Ray Dalio in his book Principles, which I know you haven't read because no. you've never read a book in your life. <laughs> I genuinely yeah. haven't. Yeah, and, and Ray Dalio is one of the world's you know biggest hedge fund managers and in his book he actually said once upon a time he, he and his team, high-powered team, would try to take in every amount of variables that could affect the stock market and how they invested but now he realises – they can never ever compete with a computer. So what they're doing is putting mega data into this this computer models he's got, and the end result is he's getting answers he would never have got before because of the capacity to do it. Now I'm thinking if he's talking writing about that now, you know within five years probably every fund manager will be doing exactly the same thing. Therefore the demands upon a business like yours grows exponentially as everyone picks up on this. But one of the big um ob- observational developments in everything that's modern is anything that w- starts off being big eventually gets shrunk you know like yeah you know, phones and all that sort of stuff it's, w- will, will there be a time when you won't need so much physical space to to do next DC because I, I, as I, I jump in the off the plane in Melbourne when you can do that and I and I get that um, the taxi across the the Balty Bridge, I see a big old warehouse, which is a new-looking warehouse, with Next DC written on it. And I say to people and friends, hey, inside there, that's all the stuff that's making our computers work and stuff like that. Well, well, one day you won't need as much capacity or are you stuck with having to always grow the size of your Next DC factories?
2: Well, that, that's actually a really good, really good question, Um and historically, there were some technologies that, that that get you there. There's there are there is a series of technologies on AI and machine learning that are that are getting better. Um, you're seeing it with um, GPU processing. Um, you know, people like Nvidia. Uh, but, but there's a there's a um, one of the companies I'm I'm privately invested in, which which may look at you know, may look at going the ASX next year. Um, a company called Fibersense, and and we. Um, you know, we, we, we basically turn a strand of telco fibre in the ground into uh, like an acoustical array where we can it, it turn into about 5,000 virtual microphones. No, not things that can hear voices, but things that can hear cars travelling up and down the road. The amount of data sets we kind of rip out of that is is, is quite extraordinary. You know, um, you know, think about 10 gigabits of fibre for, sorry, 10 gigabits per second of data that we'll pull out of that and it'll, uh, with about four four of these about 200 kilometres of, of visibility along the street, for example. Now, you know, some of the really interesting processing, and we do that within a, a single a single chip, effectively, um, but then there's, there's deeper analysis that we want to do over time with these really big data sets that we're going to create out of this. What was interesting, you know, it took 10 racks of equipment to do that um, probably about four years ago, um, and we can now do that with GPU improvements and things within about, a rack, one and a half racks. Um, there was a quantum leap that change in, in GPU. There is a lot of uh, there is a lot of work in processor technology and and um, and you know supercomputers and things like that. But the interesting point that offsets that is the amount of data that we're capturing is is more than you know is, is equivalent to that, if not if not um, outstripping it. So as as you, you're rapidly seeing the, the amount of compute and energy you can you, you're reducing and shrinking to provide the same outcome. The difference is the amount of data that you're actually ingesting mm. um, is is probably stripping the, the, the footprint benefits um, that come with it. There, 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 there is some, some very big changes that they're looking at doing that in the next five years, mm. but we're still a way away at the moment.
1: I remember doing a, a road show for Telstra um, maybe five or seven years ago, and it was at a time when a business like yours was like, how old is next DC now, would you say? Ten years. Yeah. So clearly around that time. And I thought to myself, you know, and, and they were talking about the cloud. In fact, I, I even interviewed um, Steve Ballmer when he came to Australia about ten yeah. years ago talking about the cloud. You know, he was CEO of Microsoft at the time, and I interviewed him in uh, to, a, to a conference um, at the then Regent Hotel. And he talked about this thing called the cloud. He said, it's going to change everything. And, uh, and yeah, you know, he was pretty convincing. But it's just staggered me why Telstra allowed you to to get such a – like to my way of thinking, that would have been a space where they should have been in. Am I right in saying that? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like (laughs) like, I'm I'm not a tech head at all, but I thought, why aren't you guys doing what this new company NextDC is doing?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And look, Megaport, which is one of – I'm chair of that company, and it's it's out there. It's mm. it started seven years ago. Um, you know, it's two point bit over two billion dollar market cap these days. Yeah. Twenty four countries, of which all the countries, you know, Telstra and those guys are in. But the interesting the challenge that that a lot of technology companies do have within Telstra, and this is this is of no fault of the CEO necessarily or mm. any of those things, right? But the challenge they've got is is they they, they often come with a mentality of. Yeah, the reason one of the reasons NextDC worked so well is because it was it was independent, it was neutral. Yeah. So all, we we invited all the carriers in there, we invited all the enterprises in there, and we we thoroughly one of the enterprises you know which carriers were there, who they could buy from, who they could sell from, and those things. Now, obviously, within an organization, whether it's Telstra or Optus or TPG or whoever it might be, you know, when they own these facilities, um, they they had a real allergic reaction to an enterprise customer and they're potentially buying from another carrier and, and so really what had and that had happened a lot in the early 2000s and, and enterprises became a lot more intelligent. so. So, where, where they said, you know, we don't want to be in what we call a carrier jail, effectively, where mm-hmm. our equipment's kind of stuck in the whole Hotel California situation. We want to be in a, a place that encourages an ecosystem and people to interconnect to multiple providers. So, mm-hmm. so that was one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why, not just Telstra or any kind of incumbent carrier, I don't think there there isn't a single incumbent carrier in the world that actually took on cloud interconnection sorry took on hosting of the cloud and data centers and actually succeeded mm. and it's because the whole organization is not is not there to assist enterprise connect to other people mm. so that's one of those things it's same with, with in megaport land you know megaport started seven years ago we're in all these countries we're in all the markets that every other incumbent around the world is is, is almost in but you know what we did is that we we we, we, we did that in a independent fashion everywhere. You know, we encourage all the carriers, all the enterprises to interconnect to cloud and we saw that that opportunity. And and because we are neutral and independent, we're able to kind of we're able to win that market space. Um, and that's where we are today. And I think we do more we do more interconnection to cloud at Megaport, I think, than than any I think I'm pretty sure that any carrier in the world
1: does. Okay, talk to us about Megaport because you know, a lot of experts on my investing show have liked it. Um, you know, I and I've fallen into it. I've uh, because my experts, I, I I provide them for other investors, and occasionally they get me in as well. I'm in. So, but for people who don't understand Megaport, what do they essentially? What does it essentially do? That's so unique.
2: Yeah. So so. Its greatest value proposition is we did we did the connectivity what Amazon did to compute, okay? And so what does that mean? So what Amazon did is that they really brought the cloud to enterprises where a company can just rent compute capacity on demand, dial it up, dial it down, do it themselves without talking to anyone, you know, signing an order form, doing whatever. So this Amazon juggernaut was happening. This cloud's coming and enterprises want to connect to it. The problem was is that the cloud didn't live in every data center. You know, all these enterprises needed to get to these, what they call cloud on-ramps, and they lived in very few data centers in the country. So we we realized it's early and we said, hey, let's create a platform that allows anyone in, for example, we're in about 50, 60 data centers in Australia. It doesn't matter where Amazon or Microsoft Azure sits or Google Compute sits or Oracle Compute sits. Just get a port on the Megaport platform in whichever data center that you're in, and we'll manage that connectivity to, uh, to all the different cloud providers um, over that one single port. And again, you can do it uh, in, a, in a web portal using the application. You can sit there and go, I want to connect my network, my enterprise network, into my, in my um, uh, infrastructure sitting on Amazon. I want to connect it now at 5,000 megabits per second. Go. And it happens within. Well, it happens within a minute. Um, and so, what we did is we virtualized the whole connectivity experience from whatever data center. Now there's seven hundred data centers or so around the world um, into any one of the major cloud on ramps anywhere in the world.
1: So, does that mean that you don't have to lock into a contract for a set period of time where you might not use much of it? It's basically when you want it, you can basically access it and pay for it.
2: Completely on demand. 100% on demand. You can, you can do a connection for as little as a minute for as long as a year. Mm. Um, and you can dial it up and dial it down. You know, you, you're the Vic, you're Victoria Racing, and you've got the Melbourne Cup on this week. Uh, you need a lot of compute, and you go order that from Amazon, and then you can order 10,000 megabits of connectivity for one week from Megaport. And then as soon as the you know spring carnival's over, you turn it straight back down again. It, yeah. It's that simple.
1: That's a great example. So I guess businesses would do it over the Christmas shopping period, Black Friday must. Black have Friday, been, yeah? absolutely,
2: 100. Yeah, in yeah. Yeah, COVID, we we saw when when COVID you know first came on. Uh, and, and enterprises said we've got to move out of the office. Um, you know the the amount of traffic we saw come on the network mm-hmm. and the amount of new interconnections made uh, into different cloud uh, cloud operators was was massive in March. It was huge.
1: Megaports rivals are there, are there many businesses doing what you guys are doing at this point in time?
2: No, certainly with the, with the leaders in it. There's a, there's a few people kind of, you know, coming up, but you know, we, we, we had about a three-year, four-year head start, you know, of scale. Um, you know, always say to people we started we were so far ahead. I, the analogy I would give people is like we, um, it's, it's kind of like when you, you you think it's going to be a great day at the surf and you're surfing out and you know the big waves are coming mm-hmm. and uh, and you're out there all alone, you're kind of thinking other waves coming. Is a big wave coming, you start. Not not being sure, but when it does come, you know you're there and you're set. So we were certainly out there, you know, far and early ahead of everyone, and and and, and you know, which is why we've got over two thousand clients on the platform today. Mm. What
1: company out there would you have liked to have created? You know, you're you're a creator. You you. You've, so I, I guess the question: What company do you admire most? Outside of your your own stable,
2: oh, that's a very good question. I haven't thought too deeply about that. Um, I would. It would. It would probably be. You know, there's a couple of companies. I've got to say, it would probably be. Probably be Amazon Web Services. Mm-hmm. I think you know. And and you know I remember you know I, I nearly got wiped out. Well, I had some stock, and when I f- my first company got bought in February 2000, of course the dot com crash happened a few months later. <laughs> um, so and there was a lot of stock in that. So you know I got to appreciate you know the impact of share price can happen on your stock in in those times. Mm. You know, and I can remember Amazon being you know a couple of bucks or whatever it was at the time it was incredibly obviously incredibly. Cheap. I mean,
1: tell you exactly, uh, hundred dollars down to six dollars, and then, <laughs> I remember based on saying. My business hadn't changed. I was still selling the same number of CDs and and uh, videos. He said, but the the market saw me as a, a less valuable company.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think I think Amazon getting into cloud, getting there, and, and there's there's been times when I've seen it. You know, I've I've seen these companies, and, and I think like, I just should have invested in them. Um, you know, take it easy and sit in the beach. But I think to your point, I'm a bit of a builder, um, mm. and I am at times a bit of a. Um, on um, a dog chasing a car, um, but but also sometimes I'm I'm heavily invested in what I do. So um, and, and also I've got conflicts of interest, you know. So you know, I'm, uh, particularly when you're a you know a listed in a listed company, if I own shares in some of these organisations which are customers of mine, mm. you know, I'd have to declare it in the conflicts register and and, and I have phone conversations with people, and I'd, I just never want anyone to think that I'd ever do anything inappropriate. So yeah. I just typically focus on my own knitting and go. For yeah. That.
1: And it's interesting, when, when you are in a public company, anything you do or say oh. can be held against you. I know that too. Well, I have a public company as well. Mate, it's been a great pleasure to talk. I think I could talk to you, you know, nearly all day, but I think I've covered off most of the stuff I, I would, I, you know, I didn't know what I want to talk to you about until I started talking to you, but <laughs> you're, you're, you're clearly, um, you're a great Australian entrepreneur and you've done some fantastic work and uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you
2: thanks to you Tom really appreciate
1: it that was Bevan Slattery now let's meet Zip's Larry Diamond a lot of people always wonder like where do you people come from and and I happen to know one of your best rivals namely Anthony Eisen from Afterpay I taught him many years ago so he comes <laughs> from Victoria Road Bellevue Hill um, so um, and he's always been aspirational and I'm not surprised he's done what he's done but I think I uh, interviewed you guys when you were Share price was about a dollar twenty or something like that. And you had a nice rise after that interview. You never sent me a Christmas card either, Larry. It wasn't you. It was Peter's yeah, fault. Yeah. But I think a lot of people wonder, where did you get the idea from mm-hmm. to do this? And why is Australia seemingly in the forefront of buy now, pay later businesses?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so, I mean... It, my background was in uh, technology, and then and then finance. So I worked at uh, Macquarie and. Uh Deutsche Bank. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was fortunately made redundant there, actually, uh, in, uh, in, in in 2012. So this is really the... After the GFC,
1: in a sense. Yes, I managed
0: mm. to survive the GFC yeah. as there were layoffs and uh, recover. Uh, and then ultimately, things just didn't work out. Yeah. But a, a great learning background. So my background very much came from finance, did a lot of work at Macquarie, financial modelling, mm. understanding credit markets, and also technology. I worked at Pacific Brands in the technology division, helping okay. bonds Burley on their t- tech strategy in the early days. Mm. So that sort of business analyst Mind and uh, and and then obviously um, finance. Uh, when I was made redundant, started doing a lot of work on what I should do next. It was quite a daunting experience mm. to work out what to do next, and thankfully managed to connect up with a friend of mine, uh, Greg, who who uh, who who's the founder of Prosper, cool. uh, and and was working very closely with him. And we started just discussing uh, some of the different models out there, you mm. know, world of credit payments, and I got really connected to the consumer finance world. This idea that it's really hard. To acquire customers directly, the banks are spending hundreds of dollars to acquire customers. Uh, credit cards, we believe, were fundamentally broken. You know, it, we'd seen the success of G and Harvey Norman, who'd mm. done a great job at, at the interest-free proposition, and we just felt that a number of factors were sort of coming together uh, to to create something, create something new. You know, technology was just getting to that phase where you could actually onboard a customer, assess their risk mm. in. In microseconds, you know, mm. the ability to plug into retailers could now happen really, really quickly, mm. uh, and so those factors sort of came together and gave me a lot of passion to uh, really disrupt the world of credit cards um, and ultimately build a long-term financial partnership with customers. But seeing payments as the access point, yes, you know, so If you can catch them while they're while they're shopping, mm. onboard them quickly, but then build up, you know, deliver an app and build up a great experience. With Are them. you
1: feeling that there is substantial customer loyalty to Zip?
0: Absolutely, and, and even Ilian, which is a former Dun & Bradstreet, did a study earlier this year which surveyed customers, and they found that buy now, pay later customers prefer, had uh, preferenced repaying buy now, pay later over credit cards. Mm. And so we've had this theory which is to say, okay, particularly as we get into um, economic cycles such as now, what happens to consumer credit? And you know, our, our thesis is always that because the brand lives at checkout, It is where you are every day, shopping online, shopping in-store. You have a very different relationship to it than the credit card sitting in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. And we do believe that we are enabling customers and they're building deep, deep loyalty with the app.
1: Yeah, and uh, there are two questions in my head. I'll I'll get the first one out. Mm -hmm. The second one's more related to what you just said then. But the first question is... you, you, know, you work for Macquarie, and I know when I interviewed Alan Moss, the old CEO, many years ago, he actually explained to me that Macquarie's model was, in a sense, to encourage a lot of people within the, the organisation to think like a small business, be entrepreneurial, yeah. think of yeah. things that Macquarie could do that an entrepreneurial small business would do, but that you would give them, well, he would give them the advantage of more capital yeah. and information and competitive advantage information that a lot of small businesses would never have. Did did you learn from that or or, or was it through osmosis? You saw what was going on and therefore you embraced it yourself.
0: I think it's absolutely spot on. You know, I started there as a as a graduate outside Nicholas Small's office, and it was a glass office, so you could see my screen. Yeah. And very new world for me. Uh, and absolutely, that, that was the culture that we saw, this idea. And that's why we had a lot of longevity within, within, within the Macquarie family. Yeah. Um, you know, EDs have been there for many, many years. This idea that if you see an opportunity, um, and it's a credible opportunity, and you have to get it signed off, of course. Mm. But absolutely, and that's, I think, it bred that culture of entrepreneurialism yeah. within, with, within the group. We saw it across the board. We, we jumped into soft commodities in the uh, timbercore um, almond um, orchard days, and that was because my boss was really excited by soft commodities as a great export opportunity for, for Australia, mm. and they started buying up farmland, almond orchards and, and the like. But it was a brand-new idea. The support was there. We did a lot of work to convince uh, the principal team to, to invest, and off mm. we went.
1: It's funny. One of the, um, the dumbest things I ever did was go to a special presentation by someone at Macquarie about a thing called... Um, um, things that Transurban does, you know, motorways, paid motorways, right? And um, the Macquarie at that point in time was planning to get into motorways everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy basically said, this is going to be money for jam. And I just, I just did not see it as well as I should have. I've always been invested in Macquarie anyway, but uh, that was like – a classic example, they saw the future of motorways and the kind of money that would uh, actually um, give them and it's really worked out really well. Now, the second question, I'm surprised I even remembered it, was <laughs> when you started off, one of your competitive disadvantages, which I always thought was a really good thing, was you, were, you weren't going to play as fast and loose with giving credit as afterpay was. And so, in a sense, it, it kind of slowed down your growth because you actually put more credit checks on on people who who bought um has that ended up being a a good thing or something that you've been able to live with because you're now getting the growth
0: yeah look when 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 pete and i came together to sort of found the business um there were some joint values around how we thought about this this space of issuing microcredit in 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 real time, yeah. and 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 of the and and as you do that, there was a duty of, of responsibility and We've built that into into the DNA of the organisation. Not everyone is eligible for credit. Not right. everyone wants credit, um, right. and we still find want to find a way to kind of work with all 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 customers. So it does mean you can't approve 100% of customers that, mm. that, that come through. But it's always a, a balance between risk and reward. Uh, and we think we, we sort of have, have found uh, the right the right space. We weren't in there for a one-year or two-year story. It's about um, a long-term story. This is a very large market opportunity. Uh, and the disciplines that we've put in place, we think are really, really important and, mm. and have obviously weathered um, a lot of scrutiny, obviously, obviously, over the last couple of years from regulators and, and, um, and so mm. forth. And it's important. I think the the coming together of, of um, innovation and also uh, b- being mindful of the protections that they're, imp- they're important to, to, to build into products.
1: Why is Australia, and uh, let's give the Kiwis some uh, credit here, why are they ahead of the game when it comes to buy now, pay later business? Because it was an American company that actually listed yeah. here to do buy now pay later in America, they were even chasing our customers. I can't recall their name. I know, I interv- uh, Cezil. Sezzle, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I interviewed them on, on,
0: yeah. on our program. Uh,
1: but why are we so ahead of the curve on this?
0: Yeah, it's a, look, it's it's a good question. I think there's a couple of factors at play here. Uh, one is the inter- The world of interest-free was def- definitely started uh, over here in Australia uh, many many years ago, even before we came along. Mm. Thanks to Jerry Harvey and 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 so forth. So creating the right product fit for the customer yep. in countries like america they did have these solutions but they were interest bearing they, they charged customers interest when you went into the store mm. you'd basically have an interest bearing installment mm. so i do think the product fit was much much better here and so therefore you know and we've seen models globally change and adapt to to this interest-free solution i think the other critical factor is that we uh you know, particularly in the last six, seven years, the ASX has been a great platform for supporting uh, early stage tech, you mm-hmm. know, access to capital, capital breeds growth, and obviously needs to deliver on the growth. So I think a mixture of those two things have been incredibly powerful. Would have been a lot harder, I think, if we were private over here, yeah. candidly.
1: And what about the role of big banks? Because like Westpac is, a, a, um, is, is it a shareholder in Zip, or is it a funder? What is Westpac's role with you guys?
0: Yeah, so we've we've actually got two relationships with the banks. Uh, Westpac is a, an equity shareholder, yeah. minority shareholder, and um, we actually have banking relationships with the uh, National Australia Bankers as well.
1: Because mm, like NAB had roles, I think in Afterpay in the early days. So yeah. my question is, our, the size of our banks does that make it easier or harder to do something which I would have thought they would have loved to have bought you when you were really cheap? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yes. The big the big challenge is a. Is a for, for big business in general uh, you know that uh, the, the ability to innovate the ability to move quickly mm. is incredibly challenging and it's a function of uh the technology infrastructure if you have new built tech you can move quickly you can deliver n- new new products and then th- the ways of working uh, mm. i think you know in big organizations it's incredibly difficult that's why startups become scale ups that can take on take on the big banks
1: mm. what's the i you know i always ask people i 'm um, talking to who run companies that people can invest in. Don't worry about coughing, mate. This is a, a, a rough radio program. If you got to cough,
0: you cough. We're distancing. There's no problem at all,
1: mate. We got, we're, by the way, we should say we're, we're, we're more than three pizza boxes apart. So we're, Absolutely. Yeah, we're and we haven't even eaten them yet. So no, that's, that's right. Uh, the, the, the question I think I, I have for you then is uh, what's the potential in America, given mm-hmm. the fact that we are ahead of the curve, mm-hmm. um, what kind of – Growth potential, do you think's out there for you guys?
0: Yeah, US very large market, north of five trillion dollars in retail, uh, and that doesn't include all all payments. And you know, more than ten percent of that is is online. So you contrast that with the with Australia retail industry of just north of three hundred billion, and you know, probably ten percent of that is 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 online. And what we're seeing here is, you know, one in ten customers are, are using buy now pay later. In some in some categories, it's even it's even more one in one in five. Mm-hmm. And online checkouts. That can be anywhere from 20 to 40 share, percent share of checkout going through mm-hmm. buy now pay later rails. So, if we contrast that to the US, 20 times the market size, uh, incredibly, incredibly large. Mm-hmm. And even the players that are there, who are a little bit ahead of us, some of the peers that you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, they might have five million customers. Uh, the quad pay team has one and a half million customers mm-hmm. so you can just see the opportunity there but it's incredibly important to move quickly mm-hmm. um, sign up the right deals and, and build strong
1: and marketing like you know, american advertising nothing makes me more laugh more than going to america and watching you know serious ads they're so yeah. funny but how are you going to market this because clearly you start with younger people but I guess older people starting to realise that you guys are okay, particularly as that they can manage to actually pay back their their bill really quickly and end up with any real cost.
0: Yeah, exactly. And in fact, uh, there's a stat now one in one in five are coming from the Gen X category. So mm. it uh, you know for for, for Zip oh, those older people, those Gen X people, <laughs> how dare they? <laughs> the right. average average age of a Zip customer now is close to 35, so mm-hmm. it's really on the on that cusp between yeah. older millennial and and and, and Gen X. So mm. Our view is that this aversion from the credit card, the stat. That's in the States, I read a couple of years ago, was the, the penetration for credit cards in the under 35s is the lowest since the 1980s, you mm-hmm. know, and, that, and that's parents who have potentially gone through the GFC. And so these, these trends we see as, as, as absolutely continuing.
1: Okay. I got, there's two questions I have to ask you. One is, mm-hmm. what could go wrong? You know, because, you know, you know yourself, you're smart enough now, a lot of Aussie companies have gone overseas, look terrific here, and found it hard overseas. Yep. What could go wrong? So we do a, a pre-mortem. <laughs> Which is a, yeah. Because well, you're, you're a great CEO, Larry. Yeah. You, you would do the risk management and you would work out the things that can go right and the things that can go wrong. For yeah. people who have invested or people
0: who thinking of investing, yeah, I always absolutely. like to say, well,
1: what, what could go wrong?
0: So, first and foremost, uh, execution risk mm. is, is obviously one, and it's one that we, we look at for, for ourselves. Even if you've got a great product fit, and you've got a great market opportunity, great unit economics. The ability for the management team to execute is is one that's absolutely paramount. And even even at Zip, if you look at our exec team, 50% are uh, have been with us for less than six months. So we, we've brought in some new capability to help us on the on the next phase of journey. So I think as you get bigger being able to maintain the hustle, the velocity, the ideation at scale is definitely an execution point, right? So yeah. that's that's probably first and foremost. Uh, I think secondly, um, the the competitive threats. How quickly do the big elephants r- respond? You know, mm. We are dancing like with Visa the elephants. MasterCard. Visa, MasterCard, yeah. PayPal. They
1: seem so slow, haven't they? Right, But God.
0: no doubt they're all thinking about it. Yeah. Some of them have made investments in buy now, pay later. So they absolutely validate the sector. Mm. But how quickly do we see a response from the competition because yeah. there are those that have deeper pockets mm. and more access to, to capital and uh, and uh, retailers. Mm, okay.
1: Well, it's a great story and uh, I know I'm an old-fashioned person who likes to always root for Aussies doing really good jobs, whether it be in sport or in business, and you're doing a great job. and Congratulations. I hope it keeps up.
0: Thanks so much.
1: And that was Zips Larry Diamond. Now meet Adam Gilmore of Gilmore Space Technology. This is our real rocket man. Tell us about Gilmore Space Technologies.
3: Okay, so we're a rocket company. We've been around for five years. We've got 55 employees. We're based on the Gold Coast. Uh, We've got some pretty innovative propulsion technology that differentiates us from a lot of our other competition. Um, It's a lot safer. It's a lot greener, um, and it's a lot simpler and cheaper to make. So we've been working very hard. We want to get our first orbital launch attempt in 2022, Uh, Just today, we announced our first contract with an Australian company. It's our second actual launch contract, but it's the first one with Australia. Uh, So we're definitely gaining some traction. We've been testing a lot of technology, and next year, we'll be testing a heck of a lot more.
1: Okay. Um, I want to throw this to you. I want to come back to to why in the hell someone living on the Gold Coast wants to make rocket ships. I know... Elon Musk is doing it with Tesla and whatever, but normal people would wonder why a normal Australian and, and certainly Adam, you look like a normal Australian. Uh, why you want to do it? What is the the economic potential apart from I guess the interest? But there has to be economic potential because you're putting a lot of money into it as well. But before I just go on any further, there were stories around today about America, you know, uh, mining the moon. Um, And that got me interested, like, is it going to become like Antarctica? Will it be battling over rights? and will be dividing up the moon? You have at least a a position on this being someone who's preoccupied with a thing called space.
3: Yeah, my view on that is I think possession is going to be nine-tenths of the law. I think it's very hard to get to the moon. It's very hard to get onto the surface of the moon. Approximately four or five countries have managed to do that. More will. But I think it's going to be a case of people will land on the moon and they'll designate an area around where they are that they're mining or, or operating from. And it'll be very hard to, to kick them off. I mean, I, I'm often asked about, you know, settlements on Mars and, 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 and bases on Mars. And I'm like, you know, if, if some country goes and sets up a base on, on Mars, it is so hard to get there that. You know, if anybody else can even bother to kick them off, there's no point. You may as well just go to somewhere else on on Mars. And I think the moon's going to be the same thing. It's a big place. Mm. But I think it will end up like Antarctica. I think people will designate that they've got areas of influence or where they operate from. So that's why I think it's important. Australia has to get, get going in space and launch and make sure that we get up there and we put some claims down and, you know, we get our share of of the resources that are there.
1: Okay, so let's concentrate on you and Gilmore Space Technologies. How does someone like you get so interested in rocket ships and space that you create a business around it?
3: Well, I've always been a space fan, um, but I started my career as a banker. So I spent 20 years in financial markets and – you know, the job I had, I had a look at a lot of different industries. We used to deal with corporations uh, from big to small and space became an industry that was taking off. Uh, So I looked at it as a chance for me to finally get out of banking and go into the space market. Um, You know, when I was a banker, you know, we started thinking that Apple was fantastic well before Apple took off Mm. uh, and Facebook and all these other companies, we were used to spotting technology trends. Mm. So, you know, space for me was a big technology trend that was about to take off. I did a lot of research and I found that access to space was the bottleneck. It's quite a lot easier to build a satellite on the ground, but you've got to get it to space and there's not many companies taking it to space. So that's why I focused on rockets and rocket technology. And Mm. um, since then I've gotten lucky because satellites have just boomed. There's so many more satellites being made now than when I started. And it looks like a fantastic market. We estimate the launch opportunity for small satellites is 5 billion US dollars a year.
1: Mm. So how many rivals do you have out there? Because you would know worldwide how many you've got.
3: We've got around 7 to 10 what I would call credible rivals, Mm. Um, but that doesn't bother me because we've calculated the amount of launches that are needed, and if there's 10 rivals, everyone has to launch between 50 and 100 times a year to satisfy the market mm. and to put that in the context, the company that's launched the most ever SpaceX and the most they've ever done is 18 launches a year. So the market is big enough to, to take a lot of competitors. Yeah.
1: I was just interviewing uh, an American fund manager called WCM and they're one of the best in the world and they often go looking for companies uh, which they describe, describe as picks and shovels type companies, which in a sense, he was talking about how the the modern world is filled with all these new gadgets, which all have little chips in them to you know, so we can talk to our refrigerator, and our refrigerator talks to our lights, and our lights talk to our cars and whatever. And he said, we don't want to be in the businesses that are fighting for that kind of work. We want to be in the businesses that actually make the chips. And they can sell those chips to all those different companies from Samsung to Apple to whatever. And you're going to be in that kind of space that all the satellite companies will be competing, but you won't be competing with very many actual putters of satellites into space.
3: That's right. I mean, we're addressing a market that, you know, just in the number of companies is probably 100 times more than there are rocket companies. And you know, billions and billions of dollars more in revenue that they make compared to rocket companies. So we do get to address a much bigger market than what is just rockets with our business. What's going to hold you back? Like you actually haven't um, done a launch
1: yet. Is that is that right? We haven't done an orbital launch yet. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And so when will that happen and what's been holding you back? And once you start doing it, Will it be easy to reproduce it?
3: Okay, so it takes a while to make a rocket. The average rocket company from startup to first launch is around eight years. And we're looking to do that, or eight to 10. So we're looking to do it in seven. Um, They're very complicated vehicles. Mm. Um, So we're looking to first launch in 2022. And then after that, we want to start frequently launching. So once we finalize the design, even next year, we're setting up a production line start manufacturing multiple rockets a year. Mm. And so once we start in 2022, we want to ramp up to 12 launches a year by 2025. Do you get your rocket back
1: when you send it out there?
3: And the see, initial ones, no. The initial ones, we won't get it back. But the design of our rocket enables us to reuse the first stage in the future and mm. we're looking to do that. Mm. It's, it sounds so unbelievably complicated. You know, When you, you walked
1: away from your uh, probably overpaid banking job and decided to do this, did, you, did, you, did your business plan actually accurately define the challenges you're going to have?
3: No, I had no idea. Um, <laughs> I think if I knew now what I knew then, I might not have started it, but um, I've always had the philosophy that what I don't know, somebody else does. Mm. So, you know, we've hired a really, really good team from people all over the world that have built rockets already, and it's it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. It's it's not that hard, but it is hard, but you just got to do it step by step and overcome problem after problem, and you eventually get there.
1: Um, how much does it cost to make a rocket?
3: Well, it, it depends on who's making it. We estimate ours is going to cost above five million dollars and less than ten, mm-hmm. um, which means that's very competitive uh, in the global market.
1: Yeah. Um, where did you get your money from? How, yeah, Gilmore Space Technologies. You must have spent a fair bit of the money already. So, do oh, you we money? have.
3: Hmm. We've we've gotten uh, venture capital backing. Yeah. Um, so Our main investors are Blackbird and Main Sequence, Mm. plus a whole lot of others. So we've done two rounds of venture financing and we're actually going to do a third round by the end of the year. So I'm actually actively talking to investors at the moment about raising the next round of money.
1: Yeah. And so therefore, your first launch in 2022 is a a really important milestone for not only you as the founder, but the, the investors as well.
3: Yeah, it is. I mean, the market standard generally companies that have successfully made it to orbit are worth at least a billion US dollars. So our investors are very anxious for us to get that first. <laughs> one.
1: Yes, I can imagine that. Now, what about the the? Is there any desire or any need to go public?
3: We have a desire to go public. I think um, eventually we will go public. Mm. Um, we're not in a hurry to do that, but I think for the sake of employees and, and even our investors wouldn't mind if we if we went public. Mm. But that's going to be well into when we're revenue producing. You know, like I, I wouldn't say we would do that before 2025. You know, so, we want to be very consistently making money.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so you're p- presuming that, Between 2022 and 2025, uh, you'll be in a loss-making situation but with rising, significantly rising revenue?
3: No, not really. We think we're going to be cash flow positive in 2023. I just want to have a lot of runs on the board before I list Mm. sustainable cash flows.
1: Have you had any government support? It seems to me you should have,
3: but have you? Very little, um, very little. We've had no money from the Space Agency, which which we're frustrated with, and we've had a little bit of money from the federal government, which we're happy with, but we'd like a lot more. And we're starting to talk to defence. Defence is starting to get very serious about space, so we're hoping that we can get some, some investment out of the defence market.
1: Mm. Why has the Space Agency shown so little uh, encouragement?
3: I think... They're a little bit risk averse. I think they view launch as something that they think takes a lot of money and will suck up a lot of their funds. And, you know, obviously we don't feel that it is, you know, we're getting most of our money from venture capital. Um, So I think it's just something that they want to do later on and they don't realize that, you know, help now is worth a lot more than in the future. Mm. Um, So we're hoping that they change their mind. What is like? I I think it's pretty easy
1: for my listeners to understand the the economic interest um, for you guys. Um, But what is the economic and the and the public interest in the government um, helping you to be a big success? Because you'd be our only rocket company, wouldn't you?
3: Well, we're the only like. um, There's some. Enthusiasts around, and yeah. some people that are just starting up, mm. um, but we're the only one that's quite substantial with a substantial technology development and a big headcount. Mm. I mean, one of the things we keep trying to get the message across to Australians is every Australian uses space technology every day. Mm. They don't realise it. They use it every time they look at a GPS map to to find something. They use it every time they go to the ATM and withdraw money. They use it every time they use their PayWave to tap. Mm. Um, and there's more and more cases, you know, the farming industry, the mining industry, are massive users of space infrastructure. Um, you know, bushfires heavily use satellite infrastructure to, to manage bushfires. And the list goes on and on and on. So, you know, there's a lot of societal benefits. Um, a lot of military strategists think that if all the satellites in space got knocked out, it would send humanity back into the Middle Ages of technology.
1: Mm, yeah, uh, and and is there is there with either Labor or the Coalition uh, a politician who's championing your, your cause and your future?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, Karen Andrews is the Minister for, for Industry and she's the de facto space minister and she's been very supportive. Um, and on the Labor Party side, uh, Bob Carr is a big supporter, Senator Carr of space, and then... The other person that was very supportive was Arthur Sinodinos. So I think there's bipartisan support for that. Even in the state government, both sides of the Liberals and Labor are very pro-space.
1: Okay. So just draw us a a timeline of what you think is going to happen to the company over the next few years.
3: Well, we're going to build up our technology and do our first launch in 2022. And then from 2023 onwards, we're going to start doing a lot more commercial launches in 2024, 2025, we want to start taking payloads to the moon. So cargo payloads, not people. And towards the end of the decade, we're going to be working on human spaceflight as well. So have
1: you uh, learned anything or have you been encouraged um, by what Elon Musk and Tesla have done?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm definitely a fan of SpaceX and what they've done, Um you know, they, they've they gotten a lot of government money, billions and billions and billions of dollars of government money. But what they've done sincerely is they made rocket technology a heck of a lot cheaper. Like they've taken a dollar of the US taxpayer a lot further than any other rocket company in history. So I think, you know, what their achievement is, is doing a lot with not a lot of money uh, relative to their competitors. Um, and, and has that then delivered... Um... Intellectual property
1: that you guys have been able to benefit from, in the sense that what they've developed has shown you ways in which you can do what you want to do more
3: economically. Somewhat, I mean, um, a lot of it, a lot of it's like know-how. You know, sometimes humanity works. If if you know that somebody else can do something in one year, then you think, okay, if they can do it in a year, then it's possible. How do we do it within a year? Hmm. So I think a lot of the things we've taken away from SpaceX is, you know, that they can do things very quickly, that they put talented people into a program, empower them, and get results quickly, and we're doing the same thing here.
1: Well, Adam, it seems to me that, you know, ob- obviously you're not technically skilled to build a rocket. So your financial skills ha- has made you a um, a rocket ship project manager is that a fair
3: call i say that I, I i like to think of myself as the chief technology officer i've done a lot of research on on rockets and propulsion systems and i sit into all the engineering discussions and and give a lot of value add but i have a team of engineers under me that do all the all the hard work and the, the bits and bobs
1: okay so the, the question i have for you is this that you're also the entrepreneur you're also the person who would have put the most skin in the game uh, on a a relative basis. You might have someone who's put put more money in along the way because they're just wealthier than you. But this was a massive gamble, walking away from the finance industry when we all know people there are fabulously overpaid for doing virtually unimportant work. This is important work. But have you had many sleepless nights in, in making this get to this stage where you are now?
3: I've been I've been very stressed you know they I think Elon Musk actually had a fantastic quote where he said being an entrepreneur is like eating glass so you know I've had a few cases where I've been very very frustrated uh, but I've never looked back at doing it you know I think relentless pursuit is what we're doing Um, I'm having a good time it's a great industry to work in the people are lovely Um, it is vitally important work it's good for for our for our nation it's good for our humanity. Um, I think it's the future. I think the next 100,000 years we're in space. So this is the beginning of all of that.
1: Mm. And and is there a long-suffering partner who's had to deal with you and your economic business dream?
3: Yeah, absolutely. My wife um, is also one of the founders of the company and she was the main approver of me leaving my job and starting the company and and has been... Behind me all the way, and yeah. she, and and she's the head of marketing and communications of the company. Yeah. So she's a vital contributor to the company. Yeah. I don't think she was um, she was bought in at the beginning. I think she's becoming to believe now.
1: Good stuff, mate. It's uh, yeah. and it's- I
3: have a I have my brother as well, which I started the company with James, um, and he started the company with me. He, him and I started it together.
1: Okay, and so are there are there uh, parents who are sitting at home worrying about you two all the
3: time, or what? I don't think so. I think they're pretty proud of, you know, parents are proud of whatever you do. So anything we
1: can <laughs> yeah. proud of, uh, yeah, yeah. very supportive. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Well, Adam, it's a great story. Uh, we look forward to 2022. I hope I can uh, talk to you then um, when you launch. should be fantastic. And uh, I think all Australians are proud of people like you have had a go and uh, you're heading in the right direction. Thanks for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show.
3: My pleasure, Peter. All the best. Put time! Put time!